My first guest for Philosophy is Helen Kaminsky, an Australian artist, hattier, designer, mum, grandmother, friend. And when I thought of actually sitting down to finally do this podcast, I mean, that's a failure story in itself because this started many years ago and had lots of false starts. But when I realised that I just need to sit down and turn the microphone on and hit record, I thought, Helen's got to be one of the first people I speak to. And it's not just because of the global fashion corporation named after her, but because I knew Helen to be a deep thinker, an extreme reader, and a truth talker. So here I am, sitting with Helen on my parents' farm on the New South Wales south coast, surrounded by the bush, and we decided to hit record after I told her about my philosophy. And true to form, so many discussions that we've had since as long as I can remember, we cover art, business, nature, love, drugs, politics, and in the essence of philosophy, I failed to bring more than one microphone, so we had to share our microphones. And then we also sat outside in the bush because we wanted to be surrounded by bush. But of course, the cicadas are in full flight. And they are quite chirpy throughout the whole podcast. So if you're hearing that, just wanted to put you in the zone that we are surrounded by Australian New South Wales, South Coast bushland with I don't know how many thousands of cicadas, probably three actually. They're very noisy. But without even knowing it, this all became part of this week's philosophy lesson anyway. One of the biggest things I think I took out of this discussion with Helen is that nature helps us heal. Here is Helen Kaminsky's Philosophy. Sitting here with a very close family friend and someone who I've known my entire life, Helen Kaminsky. One reason why we wanted to start this podcast called Philosophy is to explore this link that is is forever connecting uh, success uh, with this fear of, of failure and, and how failure is actually used and how failure is, is identified, identified. Mm, yeah. in life as growing up as a kid in, in business and, and then how business then affects your, your personal life and, and this stress of, of are we really successful and I think one of the big things I've always come to realise as I get older and with kids and all those sorts of things is, is that maybe failure and success really are no different and that the failure is merely just the hurdles that we put in front of ourselves to, to, to try and succeed and, and achieve the goals, whatever it be in life or, or business. And maybe uh, the success is getting over those hurdles and the failure is if we stumble on those hurdles. But every lesson in life and every time you hear someone speak about how they're, they're looking back on their life and what they've learned, one of the key things that always comes up is, is that the failures, the stumbling is the lesson, the key lesson in life that they actually hold most dear. I, I, I think um, introducing myself by interrupting as usual. It's <laughs> a good way to start. <laughs> I think that there's a, there's a sort of soft spot between failure and challenge. And um, maybe the ultimate failure is to, brought, to be brought down by challenge, which often you can't control. But certainly managing challenge is almost a, a natural part of life from birth onwards. You know, ch- challenge is a big part of it. And some people look at somebody having a challenge and identify it as failure. 
and sometimes you do it to yourself. But um, challenge is definitely has been a large part of my life. And also going back to your beginning of what you were saying, um, our conversations, and you were saying you, were, you used the word on in the sense of the subject of what we're talking about, and I thought we were going to say they usually took place on a riverbank. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you Surrounded went on to say nature. on the subject, no, but actually we were often on a riverbank, on the riverbank, yes. rather where we are now. You know, we've been speaking for a little while about this subject and you've been looking at your own life and, and looking at, at the steps throughout it. And it's interesting how you have have wanted to say and, and clearly focus on the challenge of life and the challenges that you have faced. Yeah, yeah. Because it's this perception of failure and the word failure and this negativity that surrounds failure because we feel like if we look back and we call something a failure, we would, that we're sort of demeaning it by some means. Do you, yeah, do you f- yeah. I have a good friend who talks about... Um, challenge and failure a lot and um, he would he would say that if you're not out there doing things and failing you're not learning and yeah. he does use the word failure um, and 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 his family there have been um, on the high seas identified as failures because ships struck rocks or didn't arrive uh, as they should have, yeah. you know, late or something. Yeah, and and in and in yeah yeah, and in and in the business I I was in. Well, I'm still in in a, in a more ed- peripheral sense, but to have something arrive late in the fashion industry is quite often to have the whole order, you know, several mm. containers load potentially mm. completely cancelled. And so, you know, that's a failure. But in fact, you've delivered the goods maybe one day late and the person who's receiving the goods are looking for an excuse to cancel the order. And if you're one day late, they've got it and you're stuck with a container load of things that are very hard to sell. You know, that's a failure. But but in, in, in the sense of having delivered fantastic things that could sell... But it, the place where they've arrived isn't receptive to them any longer because the season's not been good or something. Mm. That, that, then it's failure. So you're not you're not always in control um, in in any business of where the challenge and failure lies. I'm glad you brought up uh, the business. So obviously Helen Kaminsky is the international fashion business now. It started as a hat company with you quite literally weaving you know, hats. hats. Every single hat by hand on on your own. I mean, how, how did that all come about? I was living on a farm in the um, in the area of um, the country outside Canberra, and my children were riding horses out all in the sun all day. And I had seen some hats. A friend had a hat that was vaguely along those lines, and I had a neighbour in when I was living in Deakin in Canberra, who had a collection of antique hats, which her fam- family had bought in Paris in between the two wars and I saw the hats and I saw that they were all made the same way by hand with raffia. Some of it was treated raffia rather fancy and other it was just natural raffia. So I just thought I'd just run something up and I was also reading to my children the book by Laura Ingalls Wilder, Little House on the Prairie and in it the mother describes in quite close detail cutting oats and making a hat out of a long braid and then sewing it together from the crown down. I thought, well, that's exactly what I've just seen. And it all happened at the same time. So I um, 
I uh, sat down and followed Laura Ingalls Wilder <laughs> description of how to make a hat and came up with something pretty um, basic. And then maybe two hats later, because it was fun and I was doing it at night, I came up with quite a good one and gave it to a friend who had a shop in Manica. And I drove home and the phone went when I walked in and she said, I've just sold that hat for a small fortune. You've got something quite big on your hands, I think. And that was the beginning and it just absolutely took off. Did you go into it thinking, I'm going to make money, this is, this is just going to be a business, I'm going to see... Because you were... You had already travelled the world, you had been doing lots of different things. Had you sort of made the decision that you wanted to be creative and you wanted to be an artist and that was your avenue and that was your industry? No, no, I, it was the former. Not pretty, but yes, to the money. Right. I, I was working as an artist and because my husband was in the Navy and we moved all the time, when I build up, built up uh, people who were starting to support my art, I'd then move. And I'd lived in 40 different rented houses as a Navy wife and all over the world. And I, I, I could see that I was never going as a Navy wife, never going to be successful as a painter because I often didn't have a studio. Um, I had children. Uh, we moved all the time away from people who were starting to buy my work. And so I wanted to supplement our income because my husband had been a refugee from Poland after the war. And his... He had no desire to own a house. He was very content having a wage and renting houses and basically a very contented person. Mm. And I was more driving and wanting a home of my own. I wasn't wanting fancy things, but I wanted more security. Than Mike was just felt living in Australia and having a roof over his house and having food uh, three times a day was luxury. That was enough. It was luxury. And, I mean, he was just totally contented. And, and I was on a different trajectory, so I just thought, well, I'm going to earn, I'm going to earn a house. And, um, and I was very much the bit in my teeth to... It was not money and wealth and fancy cars. It was as a home. And independence as well? Was there a no, form of no, that no, you no. were looking for? No, no, no. Mike, Mike was not very possessive. Um, he was just very relaxed as a character. So, no, it wasn't really independence. It was um, within the bounds of my relationship with Mike and as a mother and a wife, but I wanted a house. So growing up and, and, and becoming an, an adult and, and a wife through the 60s, 70s? 70s. 60s. I married in 64. You married in 64. Yeah. And so... The challenges, because we're we're, to, we're calling we're looking at the failures as our challenges in life through this. That's 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 the clear lens that you wanted to come back with me saying, you yeah. know, failure is is identifiably grey area. An identifiably grey area. I like that. So the challenges we are looking at, and what 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 would you say the challenges are that you were not necessarily even facing at that point in time, but were you looking forward in life thinking, okay, here I am, and I've become a Navy wife, I'm travelling, I'm, I'm uh, a female in the 60s and 70s. You know, what, what were the challenges that you were probably thinking you were going to have to face and, and, come, and overcome? I was um, very secure in the present because a service wife has, service person has tenure. You don't get fired. Um, you, for, you, you, you blot your copybook seriously or you stay or you choose to leave. 
And Mike wasn't going to choose to leave. He was a naval officer. He was quite well paid, although viciously taxed, which made it very hard because he was completely exposed. You can hide nothing mm. as a service person. So the tax was tough, and we just didn't have the sort of money spare as ex-Royal Navy coming over to the Australian Navy at a time when the wages were not so high. We didn't have that sort of money. So my concern was I didn't like the children changing schools regularly and I wanted security in, in just the middle, middle stage of life onwards. It, it's quite serious to not um, have somewhere where you know you can be, where you're just going to move and be at the behest of la landlords and landladies. Mm. Or, you know, we'd sometimes move because houses we lived in went up for sale. And it's quite... It's quite a, a, a it's a, quite an experience. There's a lot of people in Australia having it right now. Yeah, it yeah, absolutely. And it, 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 I mean, it sounds like you're describing for me what one of the things that always when I find myself feeling most lost in life uh, or powerless in life, where I am not necessarily in control of the decisions I yeah, can make exactly. in life. So, you know, with me at the moment, work, you know, my contract is ending. It may not be renewed, uh, you know, I've been working on other projects, but they are at the behest of investors and people who, you know, and so I'm working and I'm trying all these things, but I am struggling with the lack of control that I actually have over my destiny. And the interesting thing about that, Sam, is the monster that's sitting right outside what you're saying, but very close to your thoughts, is failure. Absolutely. It's the threat yeah. of, of failure. And, I mean, really... Not everybody, but a lot of people live with that. And it's just a matter of how resilient you are. And I know that's a very used word at the moment, resilience. Yeah. But really, to be resilient enough to just get the bit in your teeth and keep going. And I can remember one stage when I was sick to death of making hats, sitting in a heap of raffia, making hats. And I was very good at making them, yeah. but they took a long time to make. And I remember my brother called and I said, I haven't painted for weeks all I'm doing is sitting in raffia I don't know why I'm doing it and Mike um, said to me you don't you know, I can remember the words you don't know where this is going stick with it yeah so his advice was quite seminal at that point you absolutely hit the nail on the head in terms of the the, the big beast that does seem to grow the further uh, detached you feel from your own decision-making power mm. you know and, and it brings me back to that image of you sitting there surrounded by raffia thinking what am i actually doing here is this the way forward i mean yeah. and I mean, i'm not painting this is my real yeah. work yeah this is my this is my real practice um i'm i'm just making repetitive hats it's sort of like knitting knitting has got a a soporific almost m meditative um way about it because mm. there's so much repetition in it it's why a lot of females particularly middle-aged and on who learn to knit love knitting because it's you, you're achieving something while you're doing nothing much and i think mm. actually quite a lot of people now of the new generation get that little bit of a um fillip when they're in front of a, a computer when they're actually fiddling yeah. But they they feel they're achieving something because they're at a machine that's on and running. Yes. Knitting's the same. And making the hats, for me, became like that. I, I was, I'd abandoned my real, real practice and mm. gone into something repetitive. But I was definitely wanting to have a commercial outcome. And a, another point that I'm rabbiting a little bit, but I must make Not that point, 
is that in art, uh, if you're starting to, if you're starting to paint, um, because you know that this way of painting makes money, you're actually slightly moving into prostituting your art, mm. and it, you need an, in, in art. And, I, and I, I've never gone out into the stratosphere as an artist, but you need in art to be free of flogging the output, yeah. because once you've got the secret then you, 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 if people are buying it, it's very hard to move away from it if you need the money. Mm. Most artists do. Mm. And that was part of why I suffered making the hats. Because I thought, yeah, well, watercolours of flowers, you know, sells really well. Lovely coloured poppies dancing across the page in beautiful watercolour. <laughs> but I was starting to get really bored with painting landscapes and watercolours yeah, in and that flowers. Yeah, because that was bringing the money. And that, that was, I could sell them. Mm. And, and, and I thought, well, I have an agenda to make money, so I'd better keep on with that. And it, and it, 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 it worked to a point in that I was able, able to get a house. That's the end of the story, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it is. Well, it's certainly an end of a story. Yeah. I mean, it's becoming a bit of a therapy session with me as well here on this, but, I mean, that's what this exploration is meant to be for philosophy, mm -hmm. to... to to learn, to listen, and to hear stories from everyone, and and gain perspective around and make a challenge challenges and, and yeah. Yeah, yeah. What was it that brought you back around to to thinking? No, I want to talk about challenges. I don't want to talk about failures. Perhaps the ultimate failure is to walk away from resilience and to go down, and to allow um, depression over the challenge to bring you down to the point where. You can't get up. And I did have a short period in my life where waking and finding myself alive was actually terrifying. And I wow. went to see someone and, and, and I definitely had, had such a hard time in the business. This is along the, along the trail of the story some degree, but I'd had such a hard time in the business. I'd been, as I felt, treated so badly and so insultingly and was so unappreciated even though the money was the, the numbers were indicating success but there was a different mm. agenda going on in the business mm. that was about succession and selling mm. and I wasn't really in that picture and so they needed to get rid of me and the way I was got rid of was horrific and, uh, and I, I went into a short sharp period of that depression mm. and everyone gets down and I, I can be tearful and I can be dark but this one was that I was I would wake and I would feel today I'm having open heart surgery that that was the feeling I got when I was awake thinking oh god I'm still alive I can't I can't get up I can't face it it was so frightening and it was that was mostly about not being able to understand that if I was good at what I was doing and the company was making money from what I was doing, that they would insultingly and cruelly want me gone. Mm. The company is your name to start yes, with. I mean, just to, just to separate that. detail because yeah. in part of taking on partners during a time when I needed to financially, um, mm. I lost control of my name. So it, mm. people often say it's your name and yes, but I had long been taught by the the men who invested in the business that it was a mere detail. Um, but it's not, though. Uh, 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 there, I mean, there's it a is, no, no look, I, I, I live with that, Sam, really. I, 
I, I know it had my name, but I, I do do still live with it in a way where that the company, Helen Kaminsky Proprietary Limited, is, is not me. No. Um, the early time? days was me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I took it on quite early because the guys were so clear that money talks louder than everything else. If we're going to invest several hundred thousand dollars in this, you cannot have control. Mm. And um, I saw the facts, I heard the facts, and I gradually got, you know, within a short space of time, like inside a year, I detached myself from the preciousness of the company that I'd been running with Mike for five years. Right. So they came in when it was five years along and already selling in America and England. Right. Quite successful. Yeah. But underfunded. And they they funded it and then had the had the control and the power. Yeah. It wasn't that they were immediately ghastly to me, but their agenda was that you'll build this and sell it. Whereas I didn't even really grasp that at the time. I I thought, you know, if it's if it's a if it's a cash cow, why not? We'll all go be one on big happy family on a big pile of money, and, and we'll be go growing. on earning money, and our children might even inherit and earn, yeah. earn money. But their idea was build it up to a point, get our money out, and sell it, right? Or rather, sell it, get our money out, yeah. Um, and which is what companies do, yeah. But um, we've digressed a little bit. We've gone into the hard commercial wor- world, away from depression and um, that challenge of getting through that and I wasn't connected to the company during the time I went so badly I was so sick I it was part of the time when they wanted me not connected mm. but it was so it was very shocking but the resilience of that was that I moved out of my house in Glebe and I went to nature I went to a remote part of the Hawkesbury River and the first night I was there, I found myself. It was just like being an ant. I get a bit <laughs> emotional talking about it. Actually, I always do. Yeah, I bet. So, so here you were. You were, as you said, you waking. Just simply waking up terrifying. on a day was terrifying. Yeah, I well. thought you were gonna when you were starting that story. I thought you were gonna say, you know, waking for me was just the biggest achievement for me because I was so in such no, a dark place. Terrified. But when you said it was I terrifying, a, I mean... A, a, I saw a psychiatrist. Right. And she, because I realised that psychologists can't um, prescribe. Yes. And she was a friend of a friend and senior psychiatrist. And she said, I think you need, because the chemistry in your brain has been now, you've been going through this for so long during this time in the company, you need to... Um, you need to have drugs for a while, antidepressants. And I took them for two or three days. And at this stage, I, wa- I, was, I was no longer designing. So I was back in the world of art. And I had a, a few paintings that I was struggling with. Now, I was on the edge of trying to paint again. And um, in taking the antidepressants, I was so dumbed down mm. that I, um, I was flatlining. And you need a lot of emotional oomph to paint. Yeah. To be creative, you've yeah. got to have a, real, a bit of energy. Yeah. And, um, and I stopped after three days and went back to her and she said, you know, well, you didn't give it long enough because your body mm. accommodates and you eventually even out and then you can start to function. I said, I can't, I don't want to get through that trip, wall. Though. Yeah, oh, well, she said, anyway, she said, well, if you want to go, she didn't use the word cold turkey, but that's, I guess, what I called. I said, I'll go home and I'll paint and I'll try. 
and it's during that phase, which was only a few weeks, yeah. that I thought, yeah, I need to get into nature. I've got to get out of Glebe. Yeah. I'm standing at the window staring out at the world biting my nails. Yeah. I, I need to get to the place where I'm small and mm-hmm. I'm not big. And I moved to, I rented a house on the Hawkesbury mm-hmm. in Never Fail Bay, which refers to a little stream. <laughs> and um, and it, quite and, apt for the and, conversation. And the, f- and the first night, yeah, and the first <laughs> night, yeah, yeah, another river. A river. And another yeah, river, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right. Um, and the first night I was there, I, I had my little dog with me and I put the little boat that I had, that I owned anyway, I had over it when I was living, I always had a, a little boat somewhere, Mm. put it in the water and it was sun was going down and I rowed across the river um, into the sort of soft blue light of the light falling and when all the gum trees start sort of being blue horizontals and the cicadas were going quiet and I rowed along the shore and my dog was on the front of the boat trembling because he was looking at stonefish which he always wanted to catch and never did <laughs> standing on the front of the boat trembling with his ears pricked watching stonefish and I was rowing very softly and then I crossed a little bay which is called Joe Craft Bay which is up there while we're talking mm. and then I rowed underneath a great overhanging Morton Bay fig Port Jackson fig or one or the other the big massive overhanging figs and underneath the fig tree um, there was a line of sandstone and above it at least a metre of earth through which the roots were twining and it was totally stuffed with shells and I went up to the bank and just pulled a shell out and of course it was an oyster shell and empty and I thought it's a midden and I thought and I thought right of course I'm on I'm on a headland which is out of the south wind out of the west wind looking north which is where the indigenous people would have sat. Um, right. Because they, all the middens are on the choice places where a property developer would put a casino or, or, or a Bruteros Palace. Because our First Nations knew prime property. They knew the prime property. <laughs> yeah. they, yeah, right, right winds, right sun, yeah. in right season. Yeah. And then I, I started to feel very small because I started to think, oh, I wonder how long... It took to do a metre of that. Anyway, then I came out of the trees and I rode along that shore, which was a north-facing shore, into Joecraft Bay. And um, it was just midden all the way along. And I sort of rode home just very quietly. It was almost dark by the time I got back to my little jetty, my little house where I started chopping onions and I started to think, yes, yes, <laughs> yes. I'm a, I'm a grain of sand and I'm yeah. safe. and yeah. It doesn't matter a damn, all this shit that's gone on. I mean, it's fascinating, isn't it, to, to think that nature... And I, I, from a personal point of view, I remember when I had reached uh, quite a dark point uh, after I'd finished uni, I'd got a job at 2UE, and I was trying to get my own little business going again. Sounds familiar. And uh, But I'd been abusing... Not heavily, but I'd been taking a lot of party drugs and just having, you know, a uni kind of life, but extended for too many years. And I think it was taking its toll and I was riddled with pain. They thought I had arthritis, rheumatoid arthritis. And I just remember my girlfriend went away and I just said, I can't be in the city anymore. And I moved. I'm I'm just just going to. Yeah. 
and extremely lucky to have the ability to, to say to mum and dad, I'm coming back to the farm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I just remember as soon as I got back here and I'd been swimming in the river not even a week and all of a sudden I just realised, I was like, my pain's gone. Yes. I had no yeah, pain in yeah, my hands, my yeah, thumbs, my elbows. Yeah, yeah. And I was happy and I was active, yeah. you know. And whereas I'm straight in the middle of the city and all of a sudden I don't go swimming anymore. I don't go walking you know, I'm stuck just doing whatever and then I drink heavily and I smoke and I, you know, and for whatever reason, you know, when I went back to the city just recently to, to move the family back there, I fell straight back into that trap. You get caught in self. Mm. And and if you're, if you're living, if you're living in and for and of self, um, you're not, you're not doing what evolving humans first did and evolved to do which is to live, live, live in, in a world where you are not in control of nature. Right. You know, and you, you, know, you, can, see, you can see, I mean, I, this, is, this is probably not politically all that politically correct, but if you see the sort of people who, cru- who are cruising sailors that will stick themselves in a fairly ordinary yacht outside in that ocean... Now, those types of people are never, I don't want to many, ma- mention the make of car, but there's a certain type of person who wants to be in a, in a bay liner and driving certain types of cars and having the right drugs and living in the right suburb and mm. making a lot of noise all around self. Right. And then there's a cer- certain type of person who'll buy a small yacht and go to sea or who'll go walking in the bush and take a small tent or yeah. who, who will constantly put themselves in a position where they're not fully in control a- among nature. Mm. And it, w- we all need to be different. But I'm definitely a person that, that I, if, I'm, if I'm living amongst the things that money can buy for too long, I start to get really unstable unstable about what am I doing in my life and maybe it's to do Sam when when I said you were lucky maybe it's to do just with your childhood that you grew up on this riverbank and I grew up on the Lancote River where we had eight or nine boats all of which leaked (laughs) and if we were sick and I was asthmatic my mother would turn around with her American accent and say from the kitchen sink where she always was go for a swim she never fussed over. She said, "Go for a swim; it'll clear your head." Wash it off. Yeah, go for a swim. Take your boat out. That's that's that, and that's why maybe why yeah. I need to be amongst nature to because feel from good. from day one you've been taught to just yeah. get out and yeah, and be a part go, of something. Don't go else. to bed and feel sick. Go yeah. for a swim. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Get out of yourself for a little. Yeah, while. That's right. Yeah, it's an incredible feeling. I remember sitting. Uh, I was travelling through Portugal. Oh, I had. Yeah found this very um, old heritage sort of beautiful stone, you know, as they all are in, in Portugal, and you walk down the cobblestone yeah, lane, it. and then I climbed up on top of this wall and realised that on the edge of that was the cliff, and then I was on the very corner of Portugal. Right. And so I was just looking out. There was nothing in front of me but ocean. And after about two or three minutes, I just sat there and thought, holy shit, I am such a small little thing yeah. <laughs> involved it was that moment yes, of yes. I think maybe that's that for, you know because I would have been about 19 20 so where all of a sudden myself yes. just I sort of dissipated yeah. and then I just became aware that you know while I can have ripple effects around me 
it really is a drop in the ocean. Yeah, and, and, and I found that freeing. Uh, I, yeah, absolutely. Mm. I mean, even hearing you say it just reminds me, because you know, we're, we're sort of going around this, that subject, that that is so comforting. Mm. I don't know... I don't know how many people I know who who would react that way, but I suspect quite a lot of people because if you have a feeling of utter um, lack of importance in the larger scheme of thing, things, it takes the weight mm. off you. You know, you can worry about feeding your children and putting a roof over the family's head and, and keeping it there one way or another, but... Um, you know, we bear weight because of the comparative success of others mm-hmm. or comparative yes. failure. Like my husband, going back to Mike, <coughs> Mike used to, used to say to me and hunch his shoulders and say, but I, it, we're living in a house, a really nice house. We've got a roof over our head. Everyone's got a bedroom. We've got f- good food on the table. I, don't, I really can't get my head around why you would want to own it. Well, now, why would you want to own the house? Mm. And I'd come up with all the small reasons, you know. So they might sell it. Well, you know, you know, they are going to. He'd, I'd come up with all the reasons why I want to own the house. But it, if it isn't jumping the gun a bit and saying my current situation is that I've just sold the only house I've lived in longer than when I was at my childhood home, right. the house on Dangar Island, and um, the idea of owning another house ever again is such anathema to me because I, I just can't stand the bills and the rates and the responsibility. <laughs> right. And so um, my husband only died a year ago, a year and a half ago, but I just feel I want to phone Mike up and say, y- 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 you had something in this <laughs> argument. <laughs> I get the feeling he might know. I think <laughs> he's got the message. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't think I'll ever own a house again. I'm finding renting's fine. <laughs> Once you got through that and you, and you found yourself again sitting under that fig tree, you know, on the Hawkesbury mm. and in the middle of just surrounded by nature and that energy, what was next for you? I found my insignificance. Right. That's what I... Honestly, I'm not being clever. I found no. my insignificance. Yeah. And I just felt comforted because I realised that my... Massive, massive depression Mm. and fear of being alive and so on was uh, just confusion. It made me um, able to stop licking my wounds and just embrace the river Mm. and heal myself. And so what must have been going on in my brain, if the psychiatrist was right, was the chemistry that was making me terrified to wake up. And you know, I got on a platform of dysfunction mm. in my in my brain of terror. Yeah. And the ri- the river and that insignificance and and who cares? You know, if if no one else really cares, I'm I'm safe. I, mm. I can just I can just paint. So I started to um, get on my boat and stick my easel up in the boat. Oh, I'd wow. row to some corner with Mac in the boat, and I'd stick it up. And I'd drop the anchor and I'd think, oh, no, 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 I have to run further. And so I'd pick the anchor up and go a bit further and the boat would then run back on the anchor chain and I'd think, mm, no, I have to pull the anchor up again go forward because I had to drift back onto the... Yeah. And then the bloody tide would change <laughs> and our boat would t- turn around and I'd be facing the wrong way. Anyway, I painted some of my... It's like a Benny Hill sketch or something. There's a, there's a painting um, at Kaminsky at the moment in the office there, which is one that I painted from the boat. 
and it's it's one that Kim likes very much, the CEO at Kaminsky, because my troubles with Kaminsky are, as you know, over now, but um, that was a sort of another time. But yeah, so where, what I came to was um, just relaxing into the river. Yeah. And being very much steeped in nature, being very isolated. Not, you know, to, to go shopping, I needed to be at the wharf and everyone on the river tends to go through that funnel, which is the wharf. Right. And so you, you'd have a chat to somebody standing there carrying your shopping or heading out to go and drive up to Barara and do the shopping. Yeah. Um, and everyone we shared, it's like people on a yacht cruising around the world. You, you share this oncoming storm and the fear. So everyone on the river, you know, when the wind was bad, when when something was going wrong, we all shared it. We were all, almost like all on a boat. Right. And so... So even though you were all quite isolated in your own little sections and area, there was this nature, isolated community. Nature dominated. Right. Nature ran the show. Yeah. Same on Dangar Island. Mm. When there's really, really, really bad weather, the ferry stops and everyone's stuck off or stuck on the island mm. unless they've got their own boat. And then you get caught in the tides. And it, it, if you live strongly with nature, so you're exposed to it, as you do on an island, and as I, you, do, you do on the, some of the reaches on the Hawkesbury, all the people there are sharing the same thing. And so there's a distinct, powerful camaraderie. Mm. Very powerful. There's a, even though people might disagree with each other in, you know, on some points, like there'd be right-wing and left-wing people on the river, um, there, there is a there is a common ground where if something goes wrong, everyone jumps to, to help people out, mm. and 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 it's the dominance of nature, mm. and it's that old evolutionary thing that must have been in early man living in a village, that they must have had differences, but they've got a common problem. Whereas now that we live and in in little cubicles, yeah, mm. and we live in cubicles where we run our own show within the walls of a house. And we share. We have our problems only circling within the family, mm. and no one knows what your problems are. Mm. There's no platform. There's no common platform. Yeah, and it's. I mean, that speaks to the heart of this research and everything that they're saying. That loneliness in a world, in a digital world that we live in now, loneliness has never been more profound, um, profound yeah. and and um, and prevalent. Yes, you know, both and, and prevalent and profound, which it, is frightening. Like yeah, a lot of people are deep in it. And that's how we started out talking. I mean, yeah. how do you see... Uh, people could easily say to me, and I, I, I think in some moods, particularly with a grog in, inside me, I might have described myself as having failed because I haven't made, really made money. I've been able to scratch up enough money to buy a house on an island, but I've never, ever had the sort of money that would buy a one-bedroom place in Paddington. <laughs> And and I, you know, my name is known all is. around. I know, and here you are. This yeah, yeah. I, I, I did not incredible. make. I did not make very much money. Yeah. Um, by by the standards of financial success in any Western country, Board, but yeah. by the standards of the people who live in my daughter's country, Kenya, um, um, I'm 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 comparatively I'm, I'm a packer. <laughs> <laughs> I look forward to seeing so your monuments in the middle of the city. So they would see me as wildly <laughs> successful. And, and, and people who are, are driving around in a, in a European car with a three 
story terrace in Paddington would would say, looking at my bank account, you're 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 an utter failure. Mm. Yeah. But I don't I don't feel a failure because I can pay my bills, but um, I do know that I w- monetarily I would be seen by most people relative to how well my name is known as a failure. I'm so keen to to want to explore this philosophy because it's consistently a sticking point where it's, it is connected to financial, but then it's also connected to your status, your job status. Fear, and, fear. And this, yeah, and so the fear grows with all of that, you know, if if you don't feel like you've, uh, you know, I told everyone that I was going to be on air and I was going to have a radio show and I haven't done it yet. Gosh, am I failing at everything here? What I'm trying to say is is that there are these these things in life where they seem to build this subconscious pressure on your shoulders and only when you find time to step back and, and see the full picture do you actually then realise what's important? And that seems to cut through any fear of failure or, or any block that's, that's in front of you because you sort of think, you know, there are certain things in, that are important to me that, that uh, I'm dri- are my driving force for living. In the beginning, I said I don't really like the term philosophy because I, I prefer to concentrate on challenge rather than failure. But I guess I have to say that... that the challenge, if you say, you know, can you encapsulate what challenge is, it's probably the resilience to to stand up and face and fight against failure. Mm. And mm. so maybe, you know, I mean, if it wasn't that you had the fear of failure, there wouldn't be a challenge, right. would there? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's you know? right. That, that's the circle you, yeah. you go around in. That's yeah, right. yeah. And, yeah. And I suppose it isn't monetary, it's... Right. It's it's you know I, I tried to think of Mike who I've mentioned a few times who who had such a low benchmark for happiness and, and his sense of success it certainly was not monetary it was fishing regularly mm-hmm. that was a sense of success yeah I don't think Mike once he went through the war in Poland had much ambition or sense of challenge mm. and through having a job with complete tenure yes. And through um, having gone through such a difficult war, mm. um, and from thereafter, from age nine, he, mm. he was when he left Poland, which was 1945. Gosh. Um, yeah, those formative years, right through the war, occupied mm. Poland. And the liberation by the Russians was vastly more frightening than occupation by the Germans. They, really? weren't, they weren't Jewish. But yeah. the Russian... The Russians had gone through the revolution in 1915, and it started. Yeah. And so the people who were who were not officers, basically the non-commissioned people who came in and liberated Poland, were came from the most basic serfdom, and they did not know what a lavatory or a sink was. They didn't know a nighty from a ball gown. They they liberated Poland in large numbers, and the Poles who could who got 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 the hell out. And um, and my mother-in-law wasn't crazy about the Germans, yeah. but she was seriously. I mean, it's certainly terrified of the Russians. It certainly paints a picture as to why he was happy with three square meals and a roof and yeah, yeah. and freedom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, he got out of all, all that trauma mm. to Berlin 
where he ate himself into almost obesity because he'd been hungry for so long. Yeah. And um, then they got to England. But from then on, uh, he was he was a he was he was he got a scholarship to school and went was a cadet in the navy at Dartmouth and then was in the navy and so he just had a sort of comfortable contentment. So he didn't live through the sort of things you and I are talking about. He didn't bring them on himself. He was a beautiful father mm. and a lovely person to live with. He didn't have moods at all. Mm. Um, but he lived in a, in, a, in, a, in a very comfortable way where he didn't seek challenge. Mm. And maybe the psychology there is that he deliberately, mm. un- maybe unconsciously rather than deliberately, he just chose ways of living where he wasn't going to be challenged. Yeah. He loved trout fishing. He didn't do and, um, and dangerous was, things. You know, we are different characters. We're born different characters. And some people carry the trauma of their experience right out front. Some bury it and have nightmares. And mm. some put it behind them and just go, oh, well. There are so many things I'd love to unpack in this conversation that we've touched on. And I hope that we uh, will continue to do this. I thank you very much for taking the time to explore the world of philosophy and challenges and uh, the resilience where we find resilience in life and uh, and I, I look forward to sitting down with you and, and uh, anyone who's listened to this can now understands why I love sitting down and talking to Helen because I think we covered about 50 different topics around the world and culture and, and two, politics. It's a two-way <laughs> thing, Sam. It's the, maybe the riverbanks made us able to... And I, I remember you as a, a little boy before you can talk. I've got a photograph of you and your mother down on the river when you were not able to walk. Yeah. Um, and that's how long we've known each other, so it's quite easy to talk to you. Thank you very much, and, uh, and I look forward to the next chat. Thanks so much to Helen Kaminsky for taking some time out of her life to share her musings and exploring her philosophy with us. I guess the key things I'm walking away with out of our chat is to keep check on who I am in this huge world, to not get caught up in my own misery or concerns or stresses or anxieties. And and when I do feel those waves coming over me, when I am feeling like I'm in my own little dark world that can sometimes be all-consuming, it's important to step outside and, and reconnect with nature. And as Helen put it, realise that we're a grain of sand in the world that is our beach. And staying connected to nature and maintaining that wider scope away from our inner self. Allow people in. Allow nature to absorb it. And get outside and connect with the world. So thank you, Helen Kaminsky, for sharing your philosophy, reminding me that nature helps us heal and loving and caring and listening to ourselves and those around us is important.